Hello, this is Melissa, and today is June 25, 2023, and this Redux is Alan Watt on February 5, 2010, from an RBN talk entitled, No Alchemical Schism with Capcomism. And I have picked this to be part of a series that I wanted to do on Hollywood and predictive programming and politics. I, I think that in the writing that I do, I'm going to get into a bit of a background on the Pentagon's involvement in, with Hollywood movies. And uh, there is a good documentary that I watched this week called Theaters of War. And it's a brief, it's a little over an hour, maybe an hour and a half, but it's just a good, simple introduction to how the Pentagon, the U.S. Department of Defense, has been involved with Hollywood movies for many, many years. And while I'm on the topic of war and the Pentagon and Hollywood movies, I just wanted to mention that next week on Wednesday, the excerpt that is going up for programmed people is entitled Psycholinguistics. And um, Mike up in Canada has done a really excellent job with this particular little video. His, the visuals that he chose are eye-opening. I, I learned a lot and it really gives you something to think about. So look out for that one, Psycholinguistics on Wednesday. In this talk, Alan read from an article that was published on the 5th of February from the Daily Mail entitled Fury at School Pregnancy Tests for Girls Aged 11. And Alan said, at age 11 now, age 11. So he started reading from the article. And I will let you listen to him read that article, but he made a couple of comments that I want to highlight here. He was talking about the claim that this kind of sex education will help cut the number of unplanned pregnancies. And Alan made this comment. He said, Now, when I was young, this really was an odd, odd, odd occurrence if anything like this happened unplanned pregnancies he's talking about. You see, this stuff came out first in girls' magazines, young girls' magazines. Even before that, they brought out the music to really enforce it upon them, too. Parents don't read what young girls' magazines are on about. I'm talking about children who are in junior school and, and so on, stuff like that. And then, of course, it was backed up by the Spice Girls, you know, that kind of stuff where the whole idea is sex, 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 sex. You're just a desirable sexual object, basically. We've had years and years of going down the hill right down to the awful rap stuff that's very explicit, and I won't even use the terms they use in the minimalistic language they manage to mumble. But it's all out there, and that's what the youngsters have been brought up on, watching this stuff. So the whole thing is telling them that this is what you do. Go and do it. Go and do it. Go and do it. Reinforcement, psychic driving in a sense, and they do it. But that was a direction that those who plan the years, like 50-year plans, 100-year plans, that's what they wanted, and they have achieved it. They say here, 
and he repeats this, they claim that the moves will help cut the number of unplanned pregnancies and abortions among teenagers, many of whom will be under 16, the legal age of consent. But critics say the move will encourage underage sex. And Alan made this comment. It's a bit late for that, because unless you literally pushed the whole culture industry out, out, out of its house, and kicked it into some ship on the sea somewhere, it's going to continue. That's their agenda. The music industry, the movie industry, it doesn't just go by trends that are making money. Believe you me. And because we are plastic and pliable, they could take you off in any direction, any direction at all. This is the one that was chosen because it is the direction where people, the more partners they have, the very little chance they'll have of bonding ever for any length of time with any one person. And then they will not have children, you see. So it's going to plan. That's why it's happening. Then he goes on to talk again about what he mentioned in last week's Redux, the International Censor Bureaus, the winning the battle for homosexual rights, intergenerational sex, and bestiality, the next step. So when I read this and listened to the talk again, and I had abortion on my mind, I, I thought, well, we, you know, we, this isn't going to be the abortion show, right? Alan talked about it a lot over the years, and he said in this particular talk, you'll hear him say, they alter the language, you know, it's not abortion, it's, it's health, it's sexual health, it's family planning, and he said, this is abortion. Someone a couple of weeks ago sent me a clip, which I just managed to watch today. I, I don't know who this woman was, but she was speaking, uh, saying that she had been in the abortion industry and that her job was to promote sex education because the very purpose of sex education was to encourage not just abortion, but multiple abortions amongst girls between the ages of 13 and 18. So like I said, this is a hot-button topic and not one that I really wanted to get into tonight. But what jumped out at me was Alan's comment, it's a bit late for that, because unless you literally pushed the whole culture industry out, out, out of its house and kicked it into some ship on the sea somewhere, it's going to continue. And I think one of the reasons why it's, you can have an off-the-cuff remark about that hot-button topic. But Alan is right. What isn't adequately addressed is the sexualization of society, of culture. And the reason it isn't addressed, oh yeah, there's studies, you know, sex and violence, and what, what effect does it have? What does it do to children's minds? What does, you know, what does it encourage... But one of the things that, when I was looking at where sex education was today, uh, I found an article in the New York Post from June 20. UK students identify as horses, dinosaurs, moons amid neogender furry trend. Students at woke schools in the UK have been identifying as neogender furries like horses, dinosaurs, and even curse-casting moons. 
sparking outrage from Britain's top leader and a government investigation. The revelations are part of an investigation by The Telegraph, which reported this week on a now-viral video showing a teacher at a school in East Sussex blasting a girl as despicable for refusing to accept a classmate who identified as a cat. Now that school, Rye College, is being probed by the government, the newspaper said. The outlet also found a student at an unidentified school who refers to themselves as moon self and wears a cape to class to express their true self, even though other students must wear uniforms and could be reprimanded for not adhering to the dress code. The kid, the child, didn't identify as the moon but as a moon and claimed to be able to cast curses on people. At a secondary school, the equivalent of American High School in the southwest of England, another student insisted on identifying as a dinosaur. And then Telegraph also turned up a student who called themselves a horse. Other pupils identifying as cats or cat self are also allowed to wear cat ears to express their true self, the Telegraph said of the so-called neogender known as a furry. See if I can scroll down to the rest of this. A student at a school in Wales said a fellow classmate complains about being discriminated against if you do not refer to them as cat self and will meow rather than answer a question in English. And the teachers are not allowed to get annoyed about this because it's seen as discriminating. It's affecting other people and their education and everybody in their lessons. It's distracting to sit in a lesson and have someone meow to a teacher rather than answer in English. It's a big ask to sit there and listen to someone answer like that and not have that be the main talk of the classroom rather than the lesson going on. So the representative for the Prime Minister said teachers have a responsibility to encourage their students to engage respectfully with those they disagree with. One teacher angrily told an objecting student that she, the student, should go to another school for thinking that if you have a vagina you're a girl and if you have a penis you're a boy. Audio of the fight caught the teacher insisting it was a fact that you can be who you want to be and how you identify is up to you. All right, so there's that. So when I was thinking about Alan's comment that you had to kick the entertainment industry out, 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 and how they got the Spice Girls and, you know, the, you know what followed, I was thinking, well, what follows, okay? We know that this, we know what is pushed in the music and the movie industry and through education. So I thought, well, the Spice Girls were then, and that's what Alan referred to. That's kind of maybe the last time he checked in with that kind of music to see what they were pushing and aiming at young girls. And I decided to just type in rap performers, the, the most sexually explicit rap, female rap performers, because I figure young girls want to identify with a female star. Whether whether they're pushing furries in school or you can identify with what you want to be, you know, as anything that you want to be, nature says still that young girls identify with older girls and what they are up to and boys identify 
with older men and what they're into or, or older boys. So I did that keyword search and I came up with two rap performers. If I don't say the names right or whatever, but here they go. Cardi B and Megan the Stallion. And I did a quick scan. I was primarily interested, not so much in learning who these two women are or what their songs are. I actually wanted to see them performing live in front of an audience because when I typed in the word demographic, naturally I came up with, you know, their target audience, their demographic is 18 to 24. And they're going to say that because it wouldn't be cool for sexually explicit performers to be targeting their music, if you can call it music, to children under the age of 18. But let's take a look at the audience. So I did a little bit of concert surfing, just a little bit, because it didn't take me very much at all to find Megan the Stallion performing in London at Finsbury Park in 2022 at an event called Wireless Fest. And it was 37 minutes. I certainly wasn't going to sit through 37 minutes of this performance, so I just skipped through, trying, you know, skipped, skipped, skipped. And I found a place where a young teenage boy had come on the stage, and the two of them were goofing off, I guess you could say. And it was at that point that Megan launched into this profanity-laced diatribe about how dare men tell women what they could do with their bodies. And it was lots and lots and lots of profanity. But she started a chant and she got the audience chanting, and I could see, ah, there's the demographic, and they weren't 18 to 24. Yeah, there were some 18 to 24 there, but there were plenty of girls who were obviously much younger than that. And the chant is, my body, my choice, my body, my choice, and you effers who want to tell us otherwise. And of course, the audience loved it. They lapped it up, so to speak. But that's kind of the aha, because Alan is right. There is no point in going on about a hot-button topic when you're going to have sides and they're going to come down hard and there's going to be hurt and pain and anger coming from both sides, one towards the other. But what is the root? What is at the root of this? It is a highly, highly over-sexualized population, particularly of young girls. So, I thought, well, you know, Alan shared with you over the years that he had been in the music industry, and even a few stories about the things that he observed, his experiences in as you might recall, he said that there was a point, a distinct turning point in the music industry where you weren't allowed, if you were a male performer, to be singing a song about some young woman that you 
had romantic feelings for. No, they needed to be gender neutral. And he, he recognized that window when that happened. And I know that Alan didn't really like reminiscing about his time in the music business. People always wanted to know, oh, who did he play with and what bands and what songs and so forth. And he wasn't interested in that. And, you know, he told me very clearly that it had nothing to do with, that was useful really to where we are now in the agenda to go down memory lane and reminisce about that. But Alan got into the music business because he loved music. He loved writing and playing and performing music. And he also shared with you that it was Plato who talked about how powerful the culture industry was, so powerful indeed that it ought to be licensed by the state, that performers needed to be licensed by the state. In other words, state control over what an audience sees or hears or reads. And I think that it's by my way of thinking, we are there. This has been an illuminating foray into some parts of the uh, movie and television industry that I didn't know about, looking at the Motion Picture Association very closely and its political connections. And I also, even though I'd heard Alan say many, many, many times about the Pentagon's involvement in, in movies, I didn't really understand until I dug into it just how big those ties are and how long they are and how many thousands of movies that they affect. And I thought, well, this would be as a, a good time, I think, because I have things on my mind to talk about my own background, uh, which is I studied literature at university and... I, uh, I, I studied Chaucer and Shakespeare, and I was thinking today about Chaucer, and I, I spent a whole year in a course on his Canterbury Tales. You know, Chaucer was a, he was considered the, the father of English poetry. He was a civil servant, which is interesting, and he wrote Canterbury Tales, which I was told in school is, you know, this amazing work of literature. You have to study it. It's it's written in what is called Middle English. This is the period it was written between the, the 1380s and 1400. And this, there was Old English, which is almost impossible to understand. Middle English, you can train yourself, and it was not easy reading, but... Our professor showed us, okay, this is how you read it, this is what this means, these are what these letters, and spent a whole year on that. Now, the Canterbury Tales is a tale of um, a pilgrimage, so a Christian pilgrimage to the site, I believe, where Thomas Becket was buried. I think it's where he was buried. So it's a Christian pilgrim's tour. And there are many tales within the, can you know, it's the Canterbury Tales, and there's a whole bunch of them. But what I recall from university was how, well, the teacher said, these are earthy. 
their body, their stories of real people. But what they are, are sexually explicit stories. And, it, you know, training yourself to read that Middle English, you're, you realize that you are reading pornography. I mean, it's sexually explicit. It's filthy. So I did my four full years of university, and for reasons which don't really matter at all, I, I didn't graduate. It had nothing to do with my scholastic record, with my grades. And I migrated west. I went west, young woman, and I went to Hollywood. And I became a film agent, a film and television writer's agent. And this is, you can go to school and study how to be an actor. You can study film editing. You can study to be a director, but there's no course. I mean, there may be now, but there wasn't when I got there on how to be an agent. It's just uh, training with other agents and learning the ropes of the business and having an aptitude for recognizing sellable writing. And I seem to have that skill. I bring this up because I worked successfully for many years in that business. And I, I knew some things almost intuitively that helped me. I understood the power of a story. I understood that the writer... I, I loved writers, so that there was no question that that was what I wanted to specialize in. To me, the writer was king, and uh, I loved a good story, and I recognized that a story has the ability to move someone tremendously. You can change their opinion in an hour on a subject. You can bring them to tears, you can make them laugh. In other words, you can manipulate emotions. There you go. And what I did see, and when I, I discovered Alan's talks, they really resonated with me, because what I, what I saw as an agent, I might have, um, for a television show, I might have a writer that was excellent, and I thought they would be perfect for the job. And they were really good. And the producers would say, yes, it's good. It's great writing and everything. But are they a lawyer? Well, no, they're not a lawyer. Well, we need a writer that's a lawyer. And sometimes they would even be specific. You know, we need a, we need a writer that's a lawyer that has had experience in trials, you know, in the courtroom. Um, you know, or it's a medical show. We need a writer that is a doctor. So when Alan tells you that if you look at the credits on, you know, the back of a show and you know what you're looking for, you are going to find experts who are crafting the story because what they're crafting is propaganda. So I liked what I did and that was that. I, there was something nagging in my mind, though, and particularly after 9-11, there was a little nagging thing. And, and mostly the thought, if I could articulate it, and I actually remember being able to articulate it, what was missing, what seemed to be missing was this awareness that I had after years that what I did wasn't really helping people. 
I certainly hadn't arrived at the point that I that I thought what I did hurt people, but I I, I thought oh I just I, I you know I just want to do something that is you know more helpful to humanity you know this this was the idea well what as grace would have it I found an Alan Watt talk and that was it it was a light switch it, for me this was instant it was the what was instant about it was conscience was that part of me that had pushed down knowing right and wrong and knowing that what I was doing wasn't right and when I heard him speak and then I listened to another talk and another talk and another talk I had to get out of Hollywood and I mean, I mean it was it was it was so fast it would it made my head spin I and I left that there, there was no way that I could do that because what I understood immediately was that I was involved in the culture industry, the culture creation industry, and that I had played my tiny small part in changing culture in the direction that our controllers want culture to go. So that was that. But it was only when I started communicating with Alan and then eventually was with him that I really learned the film and television business. And I say that because like everything else that Alan knew or did or, you know, studied, he just had an incredible mastery of it. He too loved the movies. He grew up going to them and watching them. And I tell you, as much as many movies as I thought I had seen, he'd seen many, 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 many more. And the difference between me and Alan was that he had studied them very, very carefully for many years in terms of the message that they really want to deliver in the movie. And I learned an awful lot from him about movies. And I even joked with him. I said, boy, you know, <laughs> this was my business and my love, but you really have taught me... Well, you know, some people say life begins at 40, and but for me, life began with Alan, and, and that included what I knew about the culture creation business. So I say that it was grace, the conscience. I've thought about that word conscience, and I think, you know, we are all born with an innate sense of right and wrong. We know the difference between right and wrong, and we play a lot of games, our ego plays a lot of games with us, and we rationalize and justify every decision that we make, every move that we make in our lives. We don't want to sit with any kind of shame about our choices. We don't want to, you know... I remember <laughs> early on having these conversations with Alan, you know, what I, I might say something about my past or something I did, and I remember saying, well, everybody was doing it. And he said, okay, let's start with that. No, everybody wasn't doing it, whatever it was. And if everybody was into cannibalism, would you use that as an excuse to be into cannibalism? So, you know, Alan was a, he was not into bothersome stuff. 
he didn't like BS from any quarter, and that was a beautiful thing, was to have the opportunity to really see my own choices and what they were about, how they affected other people and how they affected me. And I don't look back at that period of my life with nostalgia. It was uh, obviously very, very, very different than being uh, out, out in the woods with Alan. It was a very different life, to say the least. But I have no nostalgia for it. Really, quite frankly, only disgust. But I am grateful that he trained me to see what I'm seeing and to be able to recognize the programming and, you know, understand what they're putting across and why they're putting it across. I, I remember when I was a, a child, one of my f favorite shows was reruns of Perry Mason. And we didn't have a television when I was really young. My parents just thought that it was you know, not a good thing to have in the house. But when I was about nine years old, one of my older brothers traded his bicycle for a television. And we got it in the house, and we all watched it, and, you know, we'd get to watch more and more things, but mostly it seemed to be cartoons. And I remember one afternoon, we somehow weren't cooperating with what my mother wanted us to do, and that television was on a stand that had wheels on the bottom. And she'd said a few times, you know, turn off the television, go do this. And we weren't listening. So she came in to the living room and she wheeled the television out the back door. There was a carport, so it's like a covered place where you park your car and it was raised. So it had a drop off to the ground of, you know, three, three and a half feet at one place. She wheeled it out and just tossed it onto the ground. And that was that with that television. It was destroyed. That said, uh, eventually they did get another television, maybe a couple of years later. And I suspect that that, that device in the house that my mother and father had enjoyed watching it too, to some degree. And they got another one, and sure enough, you know, my mother became an avid television watcher. She loved all those British comedies like Faulty Towers and that kind of thing. But my favorite trick as a young child of about 12 or 13 was to pretend that I was not well so that I could stay home and watch reruns of of Perry Mason, which is nothing but uh, propaganda for the legal business. But anyway, I didn't know. So I watched Perry Mason. And I do now what I learned to do with Alan, which is kind of speed watch things or take a new show that's being talked about and watch a few episodes, just back to back, boom, 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 and then analyze what's going on, what are they trying to put across. And I, I came a, upon uh, a remake that they did, I don't know when, a couple of years ago, maybe on HBO, Home Box Office, a cable network of Perry Mason. And I thought, oh, cool, I'll, I'll watch that. Well, I could tell right at the beginning that it had a much darker kind of a noir tone to it, uh, gritty pulp fiction kind of thing. And 
Um, I'm like, okay, well, the tone is different. Certainly not the Perry Mason of my childhood, but I'll watch. I wasn't 20 minutes into it, and there came the most graph, unbelievable graphic sex scene. I, I turned the television off immediately, but I'll never get that image out of my head. And that is the power of film and television. It plants images in your mind and there is no way to remove them. And once the walls are broken down and we adapt and adapt, we, we become contaminated. That is what, that's cultural contamination. So please don't watch the new HBO series, Perry Mason, please, I beg you, don't do it. Uh, but this is, it's, this is progression. And I think that I am talking about this and about that show because this is what Alan was always on about is that the, it's incremental. And I remember him telling a story and I think you all will too. He told it several times of a young girl that he went out with when he was, I don't know how old he was, but anyway, he went to get her and she came to the door and, you know, I, I think it was her grandmother there who said, you're not going out and that's a slip. You're not going out like that. So at, that shows you that at that time, the generations weren't across the board contaminated. The older people still understood modesty and a certain amount, you know, certain kinds of values that they wanted to put across. But Alan would go on to say, nowadays, you'll have a young girl and her mother and the grandmother all sitting on the couch watching what really amounts to soft pornography. And that is that is where we are in the course of looking up to see which rap female rap performers were providing the most sexually explicit lyrics and shows i came across an a little article there of a woman who said she was 36 year old single mother and she just loved cardi b and she went on to talk about you know and i thought well you see alan is right of course he's right so if this was useful, it's not something that I need to be on about every week. Believe me, I am never more grateful of anything than that. Oh, that is what I wanted to say. Conscience. Conscience, right or wrong. Con-science. I thought about that word a lot this week because it is the con of science scientifically engineered programming that is so well crafted that it overrides your initial horror. I, I remember clearly as a child the first time I heard a swear word, I think it might have been damn on television and I was just shocked, shocked, horrified. This is the con of science scientific training on our young minds teaches us to override our innate sense of what is right and what is wrong.
and I am grateful that I had that that grace that allowed me to see what part I played my own my own participation in destroying societal norms so there may be yet another week in this series on Hollywood and politics and predictive programming. I don't know. It's been interesting for me, as I say, to have been a so-called expert coming from the business and realizing how little I, I really knew. See, that's another thing, just a real quick other thing about the fashion industry and the music industry and the, and the movie industry is that it takes young and eager people who love it, you know, they just, they love fashion or they love music or they love, you know, they love the arts. <laughs> and, um, and it uses that energy and that enthusiasm for the product that they're selling. Um, but, it, you know, I'm just a lucky one who got to really understand exactly what it was that I was selling. So thank you. Got a new Twitter channel. <laughs> Cutting through at CTTM. And what I'm trying to do is just find some venues while the internet is still here with any kind of freedom to say anything so that I can share Alan's work with you. Enjoy. I am Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through Matrix on February the 5th, 2010. For newcomers, look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. That's the main website. Look down the front page, bookmark all the other sites you'll see there for future use because if you bookmark them and the big ones go down, you can always download the latest shows by having these all listed. And remember, these are the only official sites that I have and that I'm in control of. There's Alan Watt, uh, cuttingthroughthematrix.ca. There's cuttingthroughthematrix.com, .net, .us, uh, .ca. There's also Alan Watts, sentient, sentinel.eu. That's a European site. Has the audios for download, but, but it's got the addition of transcripts of a lot of the talks I've given over the years. And you can choose from the various languages of Europe. And it's also cutting through, as I said, .jankness.com. Can't forget that one because it's very dependable. And if you find you're getting stickiness on download, it's because everyone's gone into the, the Matrix.com site at once. So you can try these other ones. You may get through much easier. Uh, this is the, the minute for the shaking of the tin can. The tin can is where you throw your pennies in because I'm probably the only person out there who doesn't take money directly from agencies, uh, advertisers, companies, and so on. Uh, so it's up to you to keep me going. And you can do so by going to cuttingthroughthematrix.com website, uh, see what I have for sale. I, I would be churning out books if I had more time, but I don't have as much time. And um, you can also donate to me as well. Now, U.S. can send personal checks to Canada, they can send international postal money orders from the post office to Canada. If you don't want to use the bank, just buy it 
the International Postal Money Order at the post office and send that. Uh, you can use MoneyGram and you can use Western Union as well. And some people just send cash. That cuts out a lot of podgy fingers with men in very expensive suits. Outside the Americas, same deal. You can use PayPal. Now, you can also use PayPal for ordering. Just see the PayPal button on my website and send off the cash and send a separate email as to what you want for your order, and I'll get it out to you. Uh, the ads you hear on this show are paid by the advertisers straight to RBN. I've got nothing to do with them, and that pays for this airtime. Air it pays RBN for its broadcast, pays their staff and their bills and their technicians and all the rest of it. So it's up to you to keep me going. And as I say, I get a free hand, basically, to, to go into other areas and answer questions, but more truthfully, about certain things where I couldn't do so if I was getting backed by certain corporations or, or, or sellers. Uh, for those who get the disc burned and passed to them to play on their CD players because they don't have computers, they don't want computers, you can get in touch with me by writing to Alan Watt, Site 41, Box 4, Estaire, which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. The postal code is P, as in Peter, 3, E, as in Elizabeth, 4, N, as in Nora, 1, P, 3, E, 4, N, 1. And that's what covered the usual base. I, usually, I, I run through this quickly where most folk would be pushing it every 10 minutes throughout the show because, as I say, I need the money to keep going on this particular show. Uh, I'd like to get another form of uh, getting the, the stuff all up to my sites because I go through ExploreNet. ExploreNet has deliberately and have told me so that they've cut me back by two-thirds speed. And uh, that's because I've been told to get at me. The music's coming in, so we'll be back after these messages. Hi, folks. I am Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the Matrix. The Matrix is an interesting concept because basically it's, it's where everything comes from, if you like your whole reality with all of its sources that gives you and reinforces that reality. It updates you all the time in reality and keeps you absolutely ignorant of the fact that your opinions are given to you and you're given new opinions all the time to suit the particular month or the year in which uh, the big boys are manipulating events. We simply adapt. We're very good at adapting and to anything really if you take the, the peasant of the Middle Ages, the serf who was on the land, uh, he was bought and sold with the land. And if he was a third, fourth, fifth generation serf, he'd think that was all quite natural. He didn't know any better. He hadn't heard any, any term that was given much, much later on about democracy or uh, social injustice or anything. He'd have occasional rebellion, and it was a, a rebellion always against being, being taxed more through the food they were growing, so much so that their own food for their, their families were being taken from them for some war effort or the king's wars or whatever. That's when they'd revolt. And all they asked, really, was to go back to the way things were. Uh, that's what they demanded. That's the only thing they could think of. They didn't know there could be any other way of living Everybody was taught uh, a very basic uh, uh, line. It was still used right up into the 20th century in Britain, for instance, and that was mind your place. Mind your place, and mind most folk did. But 
we don't realize that culture is given to us. It's shaped constantly. What's right in one era can be totally wrong the next and vice versa, upside down. We're very, very plastic as a species, and those who control and rule know that too. Uh, quite a few years ago, there was a, a KGB defector who came over to the West who specialized in psychological warfare, and he is up on YouTube. I mentioned it about a year ago and gave the link. I don't know if that link's still working, but his name was Yuri uh, Alexandrovich uh, Bezmanov, Bezmanov, and he gives a four-part uh, talk. He's in an interview style. He's a four-part talk on how you take down a country. And what's really interesting is that he goes through the ideological subversion that started in the U.S., especially in Western countries, around the same time, about the late 50s, early 60s. Now, when I'm talking about this particular um, subversion method, think back to another article I read recently where uh, the, the Pentagon and the big boys up with Obama were using academia, certain guys in academia who specialize in subversion, to infiltrate what they thought were radical groups or patriot-type groups and basically uh, alter their ideology, destroy their ideology from within, make them unsure of it until they, they had nothing to, to hold on to fight for. That's a very important part. When everything that you, you held as a belief is taken from you and you're not sure anymore, uh, then you've been conquered. So the first step to take it down a nation, as this man Yuri said, was ideological subversion. And that was done, that was completed in the 1980s in the Western countries. And um, you had demoralization, and that also came in with, with the, the ideological subversion, followed by demoralization, that was already complete, Sue. Then you have destabilization through upheavals in monetary systems, unemployment, all that kind of stuff. You create crisis, and then you bring in a new government, which is actually Soviet or communist, without using the name, the term communist. And then you bring in a, a period of normalization. And normalization generally means you're under a totalitarian, strict, military-type, police-style rule. Uh, if you think for a, for a minute that you're, you haven't already gone through all these stages into a form of world... Remember, communism must be a world system. You, you've missed it all. You, you've lived through it and you didn't know it. Because part of it was to totally degrade all society on the way down. And you do that by attacking all the things that keep society together as a cohesive unit for survival purposes. What keeps people together? What are they willing to fight for? And it goes all the way down to the family unit, break up the family unit, promote incredible promiscuity, that they'll not bond, and then the state has everyone under their thumb. They can talk directly down to you. Yes, you, you, you. Just you. No one else is going to stand up for you. That's what they showed you in George Orwell's 1984. But it's interesting I say that, that Sunstein was a guy who was chosen to, he, to head the teams to subvert the, the patriot movements by the same tactics. Make them unsure. That's ideological subversion. Make them unsure of their cause. And that cause is, is followed by demoralization. Uh, so this technique, the Soviet system, is still being used by those at the top because you'll find, if you were to go and see all the big boys behind Obama and so on, 
they were basically communists. And that's just a fact. But the thing is, you see, the Western world has gone that way without knowing it. They were subverted a long time ago. And academia still pushes the Soviet globalist system. Remember, we're supposed to blend in in a dialectic with the Soviet system. That's why the wall supposedly came down to blend in the system worldwide. Now it was time for the next move, and they merged with the capitalist system of the West. You'll find the top Soviet people uh, who were uh, and are still in the West work in universities. They're professors. Very, very important point I just made there. And certain countries are absolutely more full of them than others, like Canada, for instance. But it's still taught in the U.S. And you'll find they're very good at radicalizing students. Students have nothing in their head except what they're given, uh, even though you can't tell them that because their ego is out of control at that age. Uh, but uh, they're given their causes. And now it's all international causes, if you notice. It's been like that for a long time because it's, the next step is internationalism. And that's why destruction of the nation state was imperative. Uh, Canada, uh, through the CBC, that's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation that is uh, our version of the BBC as government run and funded. You wouldn't believe the basic, very primitive, communist style uh, plays and uh, made for TV movies that they create. It's astonishing. It's done in the most crudest, straightforward fashion with the enemy blatantly portrayed as a redneck who believes in his country. There was one on last night. I saw five minutes of it with my little rabbit ears up here on the television set. And it was about a woman running for politics in British Columbia, I think it was. As I say, I watched five minutes of it to get the gist, and that's all I needed. And um, the votes came in, and she lost. And then she, she said it was the ethnic votes in Vancouver who stopped this from happening. And she said that ethnic vote was they didn't, they went against her because she wasn't interested in the countries they came from. In other words, all politics now are supposed to be global. You see, you can't just go for your own country. And this woman was portrayed as a real nasty, obvious uh, um, um, a dinosaur from the past somewhere. We're already communist, and we just don't know it. Socialist is another term for it as well. And the big boys that run uh, the Western world really are the Fabian socialists that work and are part of the Royal Institute for International Affairs dash Council on Foreign Relations. It's all actually happened. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, I mentioned the Soviet story, a great uh, documentary. Uh, it was put out um, just about a year ago, I think so. And I put up the link for that too, but I don't know if it's still up there on the YouTube or if it's been pulled. I heard there was tremendous furor within Russia by high-powered people. Some of them now are members of the European Parliament for Europe, and they demanded that it get pulled down. And uh, here's an article about it in the newspaper. It's the first time I've seen a, uh, in a newspaper mention it, in fact. And it's by Peter Worthington of the Toronto Sun, uh, 3rd of February, 2010. And it, he goes on to say here, that uh, those who are concerned that one's history is distorted, it often never gets corrected, can breathe easier after a startlingly accurate documentary was premiered this past Sunday at the Ukrainian Cultural Centre in Toronto. 
Even so, the Soviet story made two years ago and shown mostly in the Baltic states and Europe has resulted in angry protests in communist quarters. Communism is alive and well for those who... You are in communist countries now. We really are. And, of course, the communists are shouting it's fascist, but it's actually communist. If it was fascist, your country would be only concerned about your own country right now. But you'll notice we're going, how can we be fascist when we're going totally global at a a galloping pace? This article goes on to say, The documentary's young writer and director, Edwin Snorris, Latvian, has been hanged in effigy and denounced as a liar by some in the European Parliament. These are these Soviet boys that are there now. One Russian historian publicly regretted having taken part in the film, a film in which he did not take part. <laughs> I guess that was for publicity for him. Such is the outrage. The economist urged those who want to ban it should try refuting it first. Worthing goes on to say, I've seen the film that premiered in the US six months ago, and put bluntly, it cannot be refuted. Rejected may be offensive to some sensitivities, perhaps horrifying, undoubtedly painful, without doubt, but refuted, impossible. The core theme is the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin, who was, who was, he was actually mentor to Hitler, and that's a fact. Hitler's and his boys during the Stalin-Soviet pact went to them to find out how to take over the country, how to eradicate all opposition, and how to eliminate mass amounts of people, because the Soviet system were the experts already at that. So it says Stalin was the, the mentor to Hitler and the Nazis. That's in the movie. You see them collaborating together, too. Until Hitler turned on his ally, Stalin and the USSR were Hitler's partners in war, with a treaty to divide Europe once a pesky problem of defeating Britain had been solved. Most people do not realize or have forgotten or never knew how closely Nazi propaganda... And I'll be back with more on this story, actually. It's an excellent article after this break. I am Alan Watts, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Reading an article from the Toronto Sun... Uh, that's six months a bit late in, in publishing this kind of stuff because I mentioned it last year and gave the links when the, this actual documentary was up on YouTube or somewhere. But it says here, most people do not realize or have forgotten or never knew how closely Nazi propaganda emulated Soviet propaganda. And you see the posters, I'll show you them all in it, how they're identical posters. Similar images of muscular men in posters, smelling young women, all working for the improvement of mankind by eliminating human trash like Jews, Serbs, Gypsies, and even Scotsmen. Why Scotsmen? Well, look at the list that, came, that was put out first by the Fabian Society, and they had Scotsmen on it too. H.G. Wells was a lovely character. The genesis for, and the reason they had them on is because they kept rebelling. They, they didn't like, um, they were allergic to slavery. Uh, the genesis for genocide to rid the world of the weaker unwanted originated with Karl Marx, who around 1849 wrote, Killing is justified, especially if it cleanses society. That's a core belief in Marxism, by the way. And uh, I could go on about Marxism, including some of the people who were uh, running a lot of this stuff and putting information out that people pick up and repeat on Patriot uh, Radio. Anyway... Lenin agreed, Stalin expanded the creed, and Hitler copied it. In the early days of the Second World War, Jews who fled Germany to the USSR were rounded up by the NKVD and turned over to the Nazis. 
where Hitler and Stalin differed in building a pure society and better human beings, was Hitler's digression from Stalin's formula of class warfare and introduced racial cleansing. This is a substitute for the, basically the same thing. In a sense, when you understand there is a class system of groups that actually run the economy, Hitler watched with envy how the NKVD eliminated 7 million Ukrainians, and that was all the, the peasant farmers and so on, by imposing the world's first man-made famine on Ukraine in 1932 to 1933, confiscating all food and making record sales of Ukrainian grain to Europe. There was sell export and stuff, and you'll see them going round the, the little farms here uh, and taking out the, the, what was left for the peasants to eat themselves. It was a deliberate planned starvation process with the benefits of making a money too of, by exporting it abroad, but not for the farmers. The world paid no attention. The few journalists who did, such as Malcolm Muggeridge, were ignored. The New York Times correspondent in Moscow, Walter Durante, won a Pulitzer Prize for dodging the famine. And, it, and they did. They, they, they knew what was going on, but they're all communists, these characters, and uh, they were seeing that it was a great experiment in Russia. It was very successful and they would not criticize it, including they wouldn't criticize the slaughtering they were doing. It wasn't until uh, Germany and Moscow became enemies that these same people, uh, to save Russia, started to talk about how bad the Germans were. The film footage is ghastly but persuasive. Mountains of skeletal starved bodies are bulldozed into mass graves. This is for, for years, this went on, years and years. Vivid photos of, of victims shot in the head and tumbled into mass graves. There is Kachin Forest, where 20,000 Polish reservists, they were all officers, by the way, were shot because that was another thing Marxism believes. You always get the, the, the people who can teach or lead the rest and kill them. And it says here, some buried alive in mass graves, and our side pretended that the Germans did it. Yep, that's true. The world remembers the horrors of the Nazi death camps, but we hunger to forget, if we can, the 20-plus million who died in the Soviet gulag at the whim of our wartime ally, Uncle Joe. Twenty million folk were slaughtered and starved to death in the gulag's prison camps alone. Among Edwin Snorri's interviews are aging women who recall the famine, the massacre of their families, the gulag, painful but essential to record. With younger generations reluctant to believe history, it's important there be a source of unvarnished truth. The movie can be bought at sovietstory.com. I'll put that up on my site too, uh, sovietstory.com. It's well worth it. I'm not kidding you. Uh, when you get these um, incredible fundamental Marxist professors in your universities uh, prattling on about the, great, uh, the greatness of a Marxist regime which is coming into view as far as you can see, then you can get them to see the Soviet story. It's, uh, it's, it's so important, as I say, so important. Part of that thing that uh, Yuri uh, Besmanov was talking about, the, the KGB defector, was, it says, towards the end, once you've demoralized, destabilized, de-idealized the society and brought it down, and again, he meant also through all techniques, but primarily through the culture industry, uh, then all those who had, had promoted communism, and we're thinking they're on a roll. When after the crisis came in, as financial crisis, all the other stuff, that's why top 
uh, a communist go into economics, and they teach in universities, um, they will become enemies of the new regime because they literally think they were fighting for these particular liberations and freedoms. You don't realize the new system is more totalitarian than the one you had before. Well, just look at what's happening now, all you communists out there. Look what's happening now. We're losing our freedoms at an incredible rate, absolutely incredible rate. And you have to see who is in charge of your governments and all the people behind them. The blending of the two systems, believe you me, has happened. Back with more after this break. This is Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. As I say, it's interesting to go over the techniques used to take down countries. And it's from within, always from within. And there are real hardline Marxists still around because it didn't die off. It was supposed to blend, remember, with the systems of the West, according to the Rees Commission. Uh, and Norman Dodds was sent out by the Congress to investigate the private foundations, these multi-trillion foundations that fund all the NGOs, all the left-wing groups, to ask them why they seem to be funding communism. And the heads of the the Ford Foundation at the time said, well, our, our job is to basically change the culture, alter it so, so drastically and radically in the West that it'll blend with that of the Soviet down the road. And that's happened today. That's happened today. It's already here under the guise of liberations, freedoms for individuals and so on. You have a particular chaos and you're also seeing the masses of troops and cops to deal with that chaos on the streets. That's all part of it, too, getting you ready for the next phase of it. But part of it, too, was explained by so many big players in the past that worked for the Royal Institute for International Affairs, like Lord Bertrand Russell, a key man who went through, along with uh, with Julian Huxley, the first CEO of UNESCO. That was, UNESCO was set up in the United Nations in order to create a common culture by indoctrination of youth, especially pushing promiscuity to stop bonding in later life. That was a must-be, and Russell and he talked about it quite a lot in their various publications. I've read a lot of it on the air from their books. And the whole idea of sexual education for pre-pubertal children was really uh, uh, them helping to advocate um, uh, indulgence in sexual activity before puberty. That was part of the experimental schools that Russell ran to see if it would work so they wouldn't bond in later life. And of course, everything that's happened today, you think's just happened as happenstance, but nothing again is ever further from the truth. It's planned that way. You see, Plato himself said in his book, The Republic, the, the handbook many of them mentioned, H.G. Wells said it was his most favorite uh, of all books. And Plato said that all women eventually will be, be held in common. That didn't mean they'd round them all up and keep them in some big camp and pull them out for sexual favors once in a while. It meant literally uh, you create promiscuity amongst them. And that's happened. There's many ways to, to make all women in common. And a woman who has maybe hundreds of partners for her whole life long is now held in common. You see, that's what they mean by that. So here's the outcome, as you see. We'll live through it. And Britain is a flagship for all, all this testing. That's why the big writers like Bertrand Russell, Julian Huxley, H.G. Uh, Wells, all these boys... Um, uh, lived in, in Britain. 
because they knew that they'd tested this, certain things out in experimental schools before everyone else, that the perfect society to try it out on. And this article here is from the Mail Online. It ties right in with this, this ongoing fallout that was predictable because it was desirable from those at the top. It says, Fury at school pregnancy tests for girls under age 11 now. And age 11. Uh, February the 5th, 2010. Girls as young as 11 are to be offered pregnancy tests at school now, you see. They will also have access to contraception, the morning after pill, and advice on sexually transmitted infections. All of the services will be confidential, meaning the teenagers, they call them teenagers, you're not a teenager when you're 11 years old. Um, Parents might never be told. The scheme is being piloted in sexual health, they call it health, sexual health, just like family planning by Sanger, which is abortion. They always love to alter the terminology. Sexual health drop-in clinics set up in state secondary schools in rural and Liverpool, an area with above uh, average rates of teenage pregnancy. It's a pilot project for the rest of the country. This is part of a government strategy which could see sexual health clinics opening in every secondary school and college in England. The pupils would be encouraged to tell their parents off their visits to the clinics, although their consent is not required under the laws of the child that the wonderful UN put out not so long ago. Health chiefs have written to parents saying they are not obliged to inform them if their daughter has a pregnancy test or is prescribed the morning after pill. They claim that the moves will help cut the number of unplanned pregnancies. Now, when I was young, uh, this, this really was an odd, odd, odd occurrence, if anything like this happened, because the, 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 you see, this stuff came out first in girls' magazines, young girls' magazines, uh, even before they brought out um, uh, the music to, to really enforce it up upon them too. And parents don't read what young girls' magazines are on about. I'm talking about children who are in junior school and so on, stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, it was backed up by the Spice Girls and all that kind of stuff, where the whole idea is sex, 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 sex. You're just a, a desirable sexual object, basically. And for, I've had years and years of going down the hill, right down to the awful rap stuff that's very explicit, and I won't even use the terms they use in the minimalistic language they manage to mumble, but it's all out there. And that's what the youngsters have been brought up in, watching this stuff. And so the whole thing is telling them that this is what you do. Go and do it. Go and do it. Go and do it. Reinforcement. Psychic driving, in a sense. And they do it. But that was a, that was a, that was a direction that those who plan the years, like 50-year plans, 100-year plans, that's what they wanted. And they have achieved it. So... As they say here, the claim that the moves will help cut the number of unplanned pregnancies and abortions amongst teenagers, many of whom will be under 16, which is the legal age of consent. But critics say the move will encourage underage sex. Well, it's a bit late for that, because unless you literally um, pushed the whole culture industry out, out, out of its room or out of its house and kicked it into some ship on the sea somewhere, uh, it's going to continue. Because that's their agenda. The music industry, the movie industry, doesn't just go by trends that's making money, believe you me. And because we are plastic and pliable, they could take you off in any direction. 
any direction at all. This is the one that was chosen because it is the, 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 the direction where people, the more partners they have, the, the very little chance they'll have of bonding ever for any length of time with any one person, and then they will not have children, you see. So it's all gone to plan, and that's why it's happening. Uh, I, I remember reading, and I read it on the air too, it was just about a month before 9-11-2001, where the international censor bureaus got together. Now, you think your censorship bureaus are there to safeguard your culture. No, because what they said was to keep a pulse on the public to see if they're ready to push the envelope to the next phase. And they all agreed at that time to push the homosexual agenda through movies and plays and comedies and so on at that particular meeting. And then articles appeared in the paper the next day where professors actually, one in Canada and one in the States, stood up and said, we've won the battle for homosexual rights. Now we have to go for intergenerational sex and bestiality. That's from your wonderful... See, everything that's out there that you think is there to... No, it's not there to safeguard you. It's to see if you're ready to, to, to accept the next part of the agenda. And they can bring you down and bring you down further. And this is where you end up with it. This is where you end up with it. And it's no surprise, it was designed that way. Now, there's, there's Jason from Ohio on the line. Are you there, Jason? Hello. Hello. Oh, hey. Um, I called in a, like a couple weeks ago about uh, education, and uh, this week I was just talking to one of my English teachers, and <clears throat> she, uh, I was talking to her about a book called The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America by Charlotte Iserby, and she said she read some excerpts. Well, I started talking to her, and uh, I was mentioning how, you know, poor schooling, you know, causes all these problems in society where, you know, kids escape to the drugs and go to alcohol, and uh, I started talking to her about that, and I noticed how, you know, you were talking about abortions, promiscuity, and, uh, you know, the whole culture industry. I was linking everything together, like, you know, financial... Uh, financial problems lead to divorce, you know, uh, mm-hmm. morals, which the schools and mass media um, also add to that, and the culture influences. And I also observed that every generation going from, you know, the generation before the baby boomers mm-hmm. down to my generation, I noticed how <clears throat> disrespectful and how immoral uh, people like me are. And uh, my, my teacher said that, Public schooling is used to help solve family problems. And what do you think about that? As you said, public schooling was there to help family problems? Well, I mean, to help, um, to, uh, help, you know, like solve family problems that, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, like, for example, there, you know, family divorces and, uh, you know, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, recently I read an article uh, I'll try and find it, but it's an article to do with a speech given to the National Teachers Association, and they say to them that they're part of the culture creation industry now, and they are social engineers. That's part of their job is social engineering. 
And basically, they, are, they have already taken over the role of parents as far... That's what Bertrand Russell said, that uh, he said, if we can do, use scientific indoctrination on the, the students, then it, the, whatever the parents tell them regarding their old uh, antiquated morality uh, will be of no effect whatsoever. So they're, they know they're change agents. They, they know very well that they're, they're change agents. And I think that's the term that uh, Charlotte Isabri actually use, uses on the teachers, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was in the same class, and uh, I asked this one kid if they thought that school was dumbing him down, and he says, yeah, I think so too. And um, I gave this one kid a, a, a book from John Taylor Gatto called Weapons of Mass Instruction, mm-hmm. and I asked him, you know, to uh, look at that and follow the Republic, which, you know, that's a great documentary that you were in. I, you know, applied you on that. But uh, it is very wild what's going on. With yes, it is. the educational system, I'm fighting against it, you know, giving out Fall of the Republic DVDs with a little letter on it, um, trying to create essays and theses, and, uh, well, what do you recommend? What do you recommend is, like, the best way to uh, take it down from the inside? You, you have to go and try and teach the students. Uh, the teachers are too compromised. They earn a big fat paycheck. I've talked to groups of teachers in the past. They admit, uh, where else could you get 128 grand at the age of 27? Uh, and they're quite content to uh, take their cash and be social engineers, even though they know that what they're preaching is, um, is, is not what they themselves personally would choose. So they are change agents. They're, they're compromised. Personally, I think they're prostitutes. I don't think anyone can stay in any job where, where they feel compromised and their own beliefs are being um, squashed for money. I really don't believe. That's a problem with human nature, though. So go for the students because um, uh, their minds are more open uh, and uh, they haven't been completely contaminated, not completely contaminated with indoctrination of God. Although they already have that from even t- cartoons. Someone sent me a series of cartoons. I think it was Captain Planet, a whole series of them. And it starts off Captain Planet's after all the big uh, contractors that are cutting trees down, uh, the guys who are drilling for oil across the world. It's uh, save the planet, save the planet. All through it, big money, indoctrinating children before they even get to school. Uh, and uh, it's here's an art. Here's what Brzezinski said about this. He knows he's one of the players for this new culture. He says television gives a younger viewer a first glimpse of the outside world. It first defines and does so compellingly by combining the visual and audio impact, the meaning of the good life. It's wherever he says it is, the good life. It sets the standard. It sets the standard of what is to be considered achievement, fulfillment, good taste. And good taste can be utter promiscuity and proper conduct. It conditions desires. Defi- you better believe that. It defines aspirations and expectations and draws the line between acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Remember, it's all reversed as he's talking about this. Uh, With audiences around the world increasingly glued to the television set, there is nothing comparable either in the area of enforced religious orthodoxy or even at the high point of totalitarian indoctrination to the cultural and philosophical conditioning that television exercises on its viewers. And believe you me, he's one of the boys that uses it to its maximum. So he knows this. Yeah, one of my friends, uh, me and him, me and this one kid were debating about the education system. And, and I was telling him, you know, the, uh, was George Washington, David Farragut, they didn't have, uh, you know, very much schooling. 
they did mentoring and everything, but he was debating saying, oh, well, all these people are stupid, you know, if they don't go to school and, and, uh, I mean, he, he doesn't notice because, I mean, he, he plays a lot of Call of Duty for the uh, new Modern Warfare game that came out. And he's saying, well, all these people are stupid. If you don't go to school, you become stupid and complacent and you're dumb and, yeah. and I was like, no, that's not true, you know. I, I, I mean, I, I heard from somebody that, you can learn things on your own. This kid will learn calculus when he was 15. Yes, and you can, you can, absolutely. Most schooling now is social indoctrination into utter globalism, interdependence. Um, you don't think so much about your country. You're on about c- countries that you'll perhaps never even get to see or visit. That this seems so far and removed from you, but we're supposed to be concerned about everyone else across the world, even though we have no input on what's happening there and probably never will have. But, uh, but keep trying on, and as you go for the students, it's the best way to teach is, is through them, and show them evidence, and never use your own stuff, they'll come at you, the teachers will come at you, use a documented evidence if you're handing it out, but thanks for calling. And then we'll go to Sean from Utah, are you there Sean? Hi Alan. Yes. Good to speak with you again. Um, I just had a little story to share, I was listening to one of these morning comedy shows, drive-to-work shows, and they were talking about the five-day-after pill on the line of abortion you were talking about, mm-hmm. where you can, instead of the morning-after pill, you can take a pill for five days after. And mm-hmm. The uh, conversation went to one of the guys said, well, why can't they just give uh, young people a pill that will suppress the hormones? Mm-hmm. And the guy actually made a really good point, but it was in a comedic setting. So I don't think anybody would have caught on to that, but I just thought I'd share that. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and actually they have been doing it too because young men now, and I've, I've talked to some of them, they're losing their sexual interest by the time they're 25 and 30. So you see that they're already, uh, I've read articles even recently in the last week, not just the bisphenol A and so on, but there's one I read the other night here where they were putting uh, actually stolbisterol in the food supply. And that was from a, a government uh, or a high source as well. It wasn't some guesswork from some conspiracy nut. It was actually, they actually admit they've been doing that. Yeah, I just, I was really blown away by it because that's not part of the agenda is to yes. do something like that. Sure it is. It's all there if you want it, but you just can't do it because you're, you're, you're still beastful. Thanks for calling. Back after this break. I'm Alan Watts, and we're cutting through the matrix. Now, there's also John from Miami. Are you there, John? Yes, Alan. Good evening. Yes. Um, I had an observation. I saw that on your on your web, uh, some of the articles that you wrote yesterday. One of them was on the Council on Foreign Relations, on yes. uh, the International Advisory Board. Mm-hmm. And that you used an example. You showed an example of a guy I think named was Saeed Barber. Yeah. Um, one of the things I saw on, also on the advisory board was a guy named Gustav Cisneros. He's from Venezuela. And an interesting thing about it, as an example for what you said, how uh, he's the leader of supposedly the opposition oh. in in uh, Venezuela. And yeah. him and Hugo Chavez, which Hugo Chavez is not the greatest person in the world either, but he shows. They show you how the two, how these two people, they hate each other, but they're basically working towards the same, towards the same goal. That's right. 
That's and right. I thought that was interesting because they're both, he's the leader of the opposition. And, and, and what's his name? Chavez, uh, um, he's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's a dialectic process for change. You've got to get change where you have two parties uh, pushing and pushing, and then you have the compromise that comes out of the two of them, and that's your new thesis, and that's exactly how you write on. That's how it works. Yeah. Yeah, but that was it. That was the only thing, the observation. All right, thanks. Thanks for calling. And there's Cherie from Texas. You're there, Cherie. Hello. Hello. Yes. Hi, Alan. How are you doing? Not so bad. I'd like to share a quick story with you. Um, it's good to speak to you again. I, I wanted to talk to you. I have a friend, and this is just, it just boggles my mind, but at the same time, I understand how perfect mind control is, so I know that's what's going on here. And this is a friend of mine. She's a 30-year-old single mother. All of a sudden, she decided she wants to join the military. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I am just, you know, I'm really trying to talk her out of it. And she has her mind made up. She thinks it's, it's made up. way, yep. you know, to start over for a second chance. And she sees, you know, all the, the bells and whistles the recruiters are giving her, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, after several people urging her, why don't you check out the Air Force, something... You know, maybe a little less harsh. She, you know, they told her she's too old, and the Navy, she has to be in for eight years. So, I, you know, to me, that would just be like, hello, maybe I'm a 30-year-old woman. Maybe I shouldn't be joining right now in the middle of the war. You know, something could better right. off. And then I come at her, you know, well, what about the vaccinations that they give you? And mm-hmm. she understands, you know, there's corruption in, in the medical industry. I've had a lot of um, uh, women who are in the U.S. military come back and write to me, and they've all, they all have um, fertility problems now with all the inoculations they were given. They're also given special pills every morning. They didn't know what they were, but they were forced to take them, and the sergeants made sure they did actually swallow them. And they, they've all had incredible problems, um, uterine problems, ovarian problems, and they're only young women in about 25, 26, and so on. Oh, amazing. Yes, and I, you know, I just, I keep telling her, hitting her with all different things. You know, well, what about Henry Kissinger and Kiss the Boys Goodbye, you know? Kissinger actually said, remember, I quote this to her, Kissinger said in his own book that the American military are dumb, stupid animals to be used for foreign policy. Yes, yes, and I told her that exactly. And she's like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, she just doesn't want to accept what reality is, and it's just, this is a girl who five years ago, you know, she would have never thought mm-hmm. to get to the military at all. Well, t- tell her that, that there's nothing, there's nothing about it that um, is anything like what's portrayed in the movies and so on, uh, and uh, it's a very dangerous occupation, especially when you're fighting for uh, geopolitical agendas which you're never told about. You will not profit personally by it, but thanks for calling, though. Uh, from myself in Hamish, Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.